0: Thanks to Shopify for supporting Future Hindsight. Shopify is a platform designed for anyone to sell anywhere, giving entrepreneurs like myself the resources once reserved for big business. For a free trial, go to shopify.com hopeful. Welcome to Future Hindsight, a podcast that takes big ideas about civic life and democracy and turns them into action items for you and me. I'm Mila Atmos. Today, we're going to explore a theme of modern politics that asks, how about the state does not have a duty to look after us? How about we shrink or even eliminate government? Welcome to Libertarianism. As a show about civic engagement, it's perhaps not surprising that we haven't had many, or indeed, any conversations about libertarianism. But today's guest's book, Burning Down the House, How Libertarian Philosophy Was Corrupted by Delusion and Greed, is a fascinating history of this idea and an excellent lens for understanding our current political battles. The author, Andrew Koppelman, is John Paul Stevens Professor of Law at Northwestern University, and he joins me now. Welcome to Future Hindsight.
1: Very happy to be here.
0: Thank you. So, I wanted to begin our conversation where you started the book with a house fire in Tennessee. It's an arresting story, but it really sets the stage. Let's start with Gene Cranick.
1: Gene Cranick was an aging man in Obion County, Tennessee. It was a county that had decided to essentially privatize fire protection by contracting out its fire protection to a nearby municipality's fire department, and each individual would pay a fee for fire protection. Krennic paid his fee every year, and then one year, as old people do, he forgot that year. And his house caught fire, and he called the fire department, and they came and they watched his house burn down. They were there to make sure that the fire did not spread to the houses of other people who had paid. And this episode, triggered a debate among not just libertarian writers, writers on the right and left talking about what libertarianism meant, and writers on the right and left both agreed this was the true face of libertarianism everybody's on your own. If you can't take care of yourself, you are in trouble. We want to have a world in which people have to bear the consequences of their actions, and where, aside from contract, we don't have any obligation to take care of one another.
0: Right. So many of us throwing around the term libertarianism have exactly this sort of thing in mind. It's extreme, pretty anarchic, actually, And in fact, we often talk about Americans having a libertarian streak, suggesting it's in the DNA of Americans. Well, maybe it's not DNA, but you do want us to go back to the origins of libertarianism to trace its history as an economic and political theory. Why do you want to take us on that journey? And where would you like to start?
1: I wanted to understand what libertarianism was. I encountered it a few years ago when I wrote a book about the Obamacare litigation in the courts. I'm a law professor, and that's what I write about. And it became clear to me that the Obamacare litigation was being brought by a group of libertarians who wanted to read their philosophy to the Constitution, where it actually isn't. And so in the course of doing that, I wanted to understand what libertarianism was And so I did some reading about it. And when I finished the book about the Obamacare case, I found that I still had things that I wanted to say. And I was also frustrated because I found that there was no good general introduction to libertarianism out there available. If you Googled libertarianism, you would find books written by enthusiastic libertarians. And you didn't get any critical overview of that philosophy Whereas if you Google Marxism, say, you will read some writers who are enthusiastic Marxists and others who will tell you what's wrong with it. And other people who think, well, you know, there's something valuable here, something not. But having a whole literature that consists of nothing but enthusiasts seemed to me to be a serious gap. And as I read more and more in libertarianism, I found that its origins were actually quite admirable and that it had deteriorated over time. So I thought that that was a story that needed to be told.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. So your history starts with the 1920s and 30s. So take us back there and, let's say, with Friedrich Hayek and how he came to come up with this idea.
1: If you go back to the late 1930s, the world's most admired economic managers were Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler, because they were the ones who had turned their economies around from the Depression, where England and France and the United States were still facing high unemployment, low production. And so there was a general consensus among intellectuals in America and in England, that centralized government planning was the only way to run an economy. And so Hayek, wrote his book, The Road to Serfdom, published in 1944, as a protest against that idea. And Hayek wanted to argue that central government direction of the economy had to be wasteful and tyrannical. And modern libertarianism really starts with that book in 1944. And in retrospect, Hayek turns out to have been right, at least in that book, about nearly everything. And I think that the view that we don't want government planning, people will benefit from allowing free trade. There's always gains from trade. Anytime you allow people just to transact with one another in ways that government doesn't control, that's going to make both parties better off. And that's going to create in the long run, an enormous web of cooperation that's going to make us all richer. And your friends, the Wall Street traders, see that every day. And uh, so somebody who is in that position, who is seeing all of the good that free trade produces, is likely to have their minds focused on that aspect of liberty, which Hayek was emphasizing in his book. But Hayek also understood the limits of what he was proposing. He emphasized that markets don't give people what they deserve, because what people deserve is a backward-looking question. We try to look at what they have done in the past and what deserves to be rewarded. Whereas prices, which is how information gets transmitted so efficiently in a market, are forward-looking. They measure what people in the future are going to want. So I may have toiled very long and hard to produce some product that's going to make everybody's life better. But if that new thing that I come up with faces a better and cheaper substitute, then I'm ruined and I should be ruined. I just read that there is a new drug for treating COVID that might be much more effective than Paxlovid. Paxlovid is a wonderful drug. It saved lots of people's lives. But if there's a better and cheaper substitute, we're not going to see any more of it made. It turns out to be an unproductive investment. And that's right. We don't want any more of it because there's this better substitute. So that means that there is nothing inherently unfair about redistribution because markets aren't going to give people either what they need or what they deserve. You have to do something more than that. Hayek also understood that markets sometimes fail either because there are negative externalities you and I can transact you have me produce a product and I can produce that product makes you better off makes me better off but I my factory belches out smoke that gives cancer to all of the children in the neighborhood and then it turns out that we're not making the world better off you and me are conspiring to injure innocent people and the market is not going to fix that. Only government regulation could fix that. And then there's also positive externalities. There might be something that the market won't support that will make us all better off. The government just pushed enormous amounts of money into extremely risky research on a COVID vaccine, research that would not have happened if we'd left it to the private sector. And we've seen what the result is. So Hayek understood all of that. And so Hayek is much less categorical than later libertarians are.
0: Yeah, well, since he is much less categorical, let's talk about the things that he thought we should be regulating. And I thought what's really interesting is that he was really for having, for example, health insurance. So What are kind of the ways in which regulation can, in fact, lead to more freedom?
1: Well, I mean, government provided health insurance is a combination of regulation and subsidy. And actually, the basic scheme for Obamacare was something that Hayek proposed in 1960 in his book, The Constitution of Liberty. And Hayek was criticizing the British National Health Service where all of the doctors are on the government payroll and they're free for anybody to come in. And Hayek said, why do you need these people to be on the payroll? Why don't you just give people vouchers to buy insurance in the private sector? Of course, we'd have to require everyone to have health insurance so that they don't wait until they're sick to come in. And you'd have to, here comes the regulation part, you would have to require the insurers to provide a minimal level of insurance. So that the insurance can't be, we're only going to insure you for hangnails on Tuesdays. There's got to be a minimal level. And we're going to have to make the insurers, write insurance for people even if they are sick. And everything I just described is Obamacare. So he thought that misfortunes of this kind, like unexpectedly getting sick, are the sort of thing that people can't uh, necessarily protect themselves from or foresee, and that government ought to be able to step in and protect people from the uh, misfortunes that are hard to anticipate. Another such misfortune, I might note, is fire protection.
0: Right, yes, as we've just seen. So let's head to the other end of the libertarian spectrum from Hayek to what you call tough luck libertarianism. It's right there in the house fire story, of course, that we started with, but it's also found in some of the arguments against the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. It seems to be the ultimate in people voting and acting against their own economic interests, their own well being. So, what's the attraction?
1: This idea that uh, if you are sick and you can't afford to pay for it, that's your tough luck. In my earlier book, which was called The Tough Luck Constitution and the Assault on Healthcare Reform, I tried to argue that that was what underlay the Obamacare challenge. There are philosophical arguments for it. And one of the things that I try to do in the new book is go through those. To summarize in an agony of compression, I will say that the arguments are not very good. But I think that the deep appeal is a wishful sense of self-sufficiency. I can take care of myself and I don't need anybody else. And it is that idea of being absolutely self-sufficient and able to handle myself in the face of a world that doesn't appreciate me, which is part of the appeal. It certainly is the driving appeal of Ayn Rand's novel, The Fountainhead, to, I think, a lesser extent, Atlas Shrugged as well. And I think that that is the deepest emotional wellspring of libertarianism. And the other thing that I think that it comes out of is a despair about institutions. People don't have the same kind of trust in institutions that they once did, and they think that they can get along without them, or they hope they can get along without them, or they fantasize about getting along without them. But in fact, the kind of prosperity that America saw in the mid-20th century was the consequence of an extremely strong and energetic state. Quite a lot of the growth in gross national product in the 1950s happened because Dwight Eisenhower undertook this big project of the interstate highway system. And in general, big government facilitates our freedom by making the country richer and giving us more wherewithal to conduct our lives as we like.
0: Yes, I think that was really made plain in your book. And, uh, you know, this uh, fantasy that you just mentioned about being wholly self-sufficient, I think you encounter that a lot, especially on Wall Street. You know, I am a self-made man or woman, and uh, everything I made, I deserve 100% of. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, the link between climate denial and libertarianism, where it comes from, what's the motivation? But first, can we talk about notifications for a second? Who actually leaves those sounds on anymore? Well, besides that kind. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify has all the sales channels sorted, so your business keeps growing from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. Whether your thing is vintage teas or recipes for ghee, Start selling with Shopify and join the platform, simplifying commerce for millions of your favorite businesses worldwide. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. With Shopify, you'll create an online store in your vibe, discover new customers, and grow the following that keeps them coming back. And thanks to 24 7 support and free libraries full of educational content, Shopify's got you every step of the way. It's how every minute, New sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify, and you will, too. When you're ready to launch your thing into the spotlight, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform backing millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. This is possibility powered by Shopify. Whether your thing is making ebooks or earrings, Shopify makes selling simple so you can put yourself and your ideas out there. Making your idea real opens endless possibilities. I love how Shopify makes it easy for anyone to successfully run your own business. It's never been easier to start and grow a business thanks to Shopify. Go on, try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com hopeful. Go to shopify.com hopeful to start selling online today. Shopify.com hopeful. And now let's return to my conversation with Andrew Koppelman. I wanted to ask you about the connection between libertarianism and climate denial, because you explore the huge impact libertarian billionaires like the Koch brothers have had on climate skepticism in politics and on the response to climate change. Can you help us understand that connection?
1: After I talk about Hayek, I talk about subsequent thinkers who have a much more categorical view of the limits of the state and of the limited role of the state. People like Murray Rothbard, the most important philosopher you never heard of. I try to make the case that he's actually very important. Or Robert Nozick, who is the libertarian that lots of people read in college. Or Ayn Rand, who is probably the most influential of the lot. So this philosophy had a big impact on Charles Koch. Koch was a friend of Rothbard, and Rothbard persuaded him to start the Cato Institute which was a very Rothbardian institution, and Rothbard was extremely suspicious of anything that the state did, tried to argue that we could take care of ourselves without any role at all for the state, and I tried to show, going through Rothbard's ideas, how he struggled with the problem of pollution and never really came up with a good answer to the problem of pollution and ended up, for the most part, denying it and ignoring it. And I think that that kind of denial is the best way to account for Koch's activity in this area. Koch started out as an idealist. He was supporting libertarian causes way back in the 1960s when he was not particularly politically significant at all. He was just a true believer. And this was the story about the world that appealed to him. And he wanted to promote it. He also was a heavy investor in fossil fuels. His whole business is based on petroleum refining. And in the first Bush administration, the George H.W. Bush administration, government was already recognizing the problem of climate change. And there is a serious possibility that they could have passed a carbon tax way back then. There was some movement in that direction and Koch mobilized against it and started flooding the world with junk science, trying to deny the influence of climate change, really very much following the model of the tobacco industry, which was trying to cast doubt on the link between cigarettes and cancer. Jane Mayer has done a very good job of showing the link. And... To the extent that this is not the product of pure greed, which is the explanation that Mayer offers, I think that it comes out of the ideology that Koch was married to long before there was a climate problem. This is just an ideology that has a great deal of difficulty coping with the fact that we are quite vulnerable individually, and that there are some problems that the human race faces that can only be dealt with by organized collective action led by a strong state. The other example, obviously, is COVID, where again, saying that, you know, I'm going to take care of COVID all by myself is crazy. But a lot of people were drawn to that view, and an awful lot of people died as a result.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, Thank you for giving us a, a very brief overview of the other strains of libertarianism. I think you need them to explain Coke. Yes, Koch. You, you do need them to explain Coke. But what's really interesting about Rothbard specifically is that Hayek, of course, himself was actually very much pro-regulating externalities like toxic pollution. And he thought that this is the perfect place for the government to intervene. Hurting someone through pollution is just as bad as murder. But libertarianism, as practiced by Koch and Rothbard, has done more to hurt people through pollution than not. And as you said, the COVID exercise seems to really refute libertarianism in our current circumstances. So our challenges, to me, seem to demand communal responses, as opposed to, of course, you know, tough luck, libertarianism, and you're on your own. So is libertarianism outdated?
1: Well... I think that Hayek, the most valid part of libertarianism about the enormous wealth and prosperity that markets can bring to everybody, has actually been massively vindicated by experience. A few decades ago, almost half of the human race was living in desperate poverty at the $2 a day level. And today, it is less than 10% of the people on the planet, and most of them live in failed states. More than half of the human race is middle class in the sense of having some disposable income where they can decide what they want to do with the money they don't need at all for food and shelter. This is one of the greatest things that has ever happened in history, and it happened because we were listening to Hayek. But... At the same time, and this is, again, you know, what your Wall Street traders, they can say, I am rich because I participate in a system that has made everybody better off. And Hayek also showed that a necessary consequence of that system is massive inequalities of wealth. But that doesn't preclude redistribution. It doesn't preclude a really robust welfare state. Sweden has one of the most generous welfare states in the world, and it also has more billionaires per capita than the United States. So it's possible to have both of those. What they are not entitled to say, Hayek thinks, is I deserve every penny that I have made. You only have made this money because you find yourself in a privileged position, a lucky position in an economic system that you did not yourself create that had slots for people like you. And you were just very lucky. I am a political philosopher, uh, and that's my training. I teach in a law school, and I teach law students political philosophy. And my justification for that is, as I tell my students, law just is political philosophy with guns. (laughs) Political philosophy is an account of how political power ought to be deployed. Law is people who have an idea of how political power ought to be deployed and who have the power to do it. It is somewhat upstream of any particular philosophy. So in terms of practical politics, I think that the broad Hayekian perspective actually is shared by almost all Americans today. So even Bernie Sanders has said he does not want to nationalize the means of production. Like socialists in the past, what he means by socialism is a really generous welfare state on the scale of Sweden. Now, there are some genuine socialists who really want to nationalize the means of production. Uh, You read a lot of them in, for example, Jacobin magazine. And I want to say to those people, I actually did say in a blog post a couple of years ago called Socialists for Capitalism, that if you care about the people on the bottom, if you care about the worst off people, a robust free market is likely to do more for those people than any centralized state control. And then we're just arguing about means. So... I think that just in terms of what the basic elements of your political program ought to be, it's helpful to read Hayek. It's also, I think, you know, one of the things I'm trying to expose in the book is that there are really two kinds of people who make libertarian arguments, and they form a political alliance, but they have rather different intentions. One group is idealists who really believe that an absolutely minimal state or no state at all will make us better off, and who really believe that anything that limits state power is going to leave people freer to shape their own lives. And the other group is a people, typically in business, who would like to be able to hurt other people without being bothered by the police. And so the deployment of libertarian rhetoric, for example, in the Obamacare fight, or in Donald Trump's efforts to gut the uh, scientific expertise of the federal bureaucracy, really is in the service of the second. So quite a lot of Trump's attack on environmental regulation was not like the kind of attack that you saw under Reagan, where they just wanted to make sure that some environmental regulation wasn't cost justified. They thought that some environmental regulation was wasteful, whereas Trump didn't care whether it was wasteful or not. Even if uh, environmental regulation was saving lives, still, it's costing business money. We're not going to do it. It's a very different perspective and they used libertarian rhetoric. The thing that I want people to take away is, don't believe this stuff. I'm not a political strategist. I'm a professor and a philosopher. What I can offer you is less confusion and less ignorance. That's my job.
0: Yes, we're all about less confusion and less ignorance. Well, you just described two kinds of people who use libertarian talking points. One is a true believer and one is really a predator. And so this is kind of a related question and it feels like more than a coincidence. Libertarians are a pretty white bunch. I did a search, a quick search, and pulled up a short list of black libertarians and also several articles asking why there aren't more black libertarians. We know markets are not colorblind and you actually wrote a whole chapter about this. Have you thought about how race interplays with this debate, meaning Why are there not more black libertarians?
1: Well, it interplays in a number of ways. I I think the most salient one, and the one that had the deepest impact on American politics, is the most libertarian presidential candidate I think ever was Barry Goldwater, who after he got the Republican nomination in 1964, surprised everybody by voting against the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And so in doing that, he lost the black vote, which before then had skewed somewhat democratic, but Eisenhower in 1956 got about 40% of the black vote. And Nixon, when he was running against Kennedy in 1960, got about a third of the black vote. And then Goldwater got less than 10% and it has been hard for any Republican to crack ever since. So anti-discrimination law turns out to be a place where libertarians think government should not interfere with the market, should not interfere with anybody's private economic choices. Anti-discrimination law does that. It's illegitimate. That's the position that Milton Friedman took in Capitalism and Freedom. In 1962, he claimed the market was going to fix it, which is such a silly thing to write in 1962, but uh, that's what he thought. I also think that this fantasy of self-sufficiency is something that people are more likely to be drawn to if they have enough money to make themselves comfortable. And the population of people who are like that, for some reason, is disproportionately white in the United States. And so I think that means that white people are more vulnerable to this particular intellectual infection. And then, while I don't talk about this very much in the book, since I finished the book and while the book was in press, the racists seem to have essentially taken over the Libertarian Party. So then you want to know where did those folks come from? There was always a strain of Libertarianism that fantasized that the United States could be treated like a big piece of property from which you could exclude people and from which you could exclude trespassers, and that we could keep all of the non-white people out of the United States, and that was what liberty consisted of. This involves a really crude misunderstanding of what property is, (laughs) since a country is not a piece of property. And uh, while the United States did for a long time have explicitly racist immigration laws, those racist immigration laws were abandoned in the 1960s, which is why the Americans look different now than they did in the 1960s. So uh, there is a faction of libertarians who are drawn to this idea, and... There's always a problem with any political organization if the political organization can be controlled by a small group of motivated people who show up at the meeting. That's what produced the radicalization of the Labour Party in Britain that gave you Jeremy Corbyn. And it was the same pack the meeting strategy that has given you a libertarian party of today that is no longer ready to disavow racism.
0: Hmm. Yes. Well... I'm wondering if you see a libertarian streak emerging at the Supreme Court, which is, of course, your other beat as a law professor. I'm thinking about the court's conservative majority's solicitude for curtailing or eviscerating the administrative state. I'm also thinking about the way in which they let the Texas SB-8 abortion ban stand, which is based in a kind of vigilantism, it seems. Or am I totally off base here?
1: Well, I mean, it's very hard to figure out where to place abortion in the libertarian framework because everything depends on whether a fetus is, in fact, a rights bearing person, which is a question we're not going to resolve here and that I wasn't going to resolve in my book. And so the book doesn't talk about abortion at all. And that's a conscious decision I made. I'm quite energetically pro choice. I have argued in a kind of libertarian argument that abortion ought to be understood to be constitutionally protected by the 13th Amendment because uh, compelling women to have children, whether they wanted to or not, actually was part of what it meant to be a slave before the Civil War in the United States. And the 13th Amendment means that we're not going to do that anymore. And I've made that argument in several articles. They're available for free on the web if if anyone is curious, but... uh, In the book, I talk about the more general proposition that we'll all be freer if the state is constrained. And we have seen that on the contemporary Supreme Court. And I think that libertarianism is playing a role in its effort to constrain the administrative state. I think about the decision saying that the occupational safety and health administration could not require workers to be vaccinated before they went to work because the court said this is a problem that is not within the uh, delegated ambit of the occupational safety and health administration went If you read the statute, it obviously is. The whole purpose of the statute is that you should be able to go to work and not have your body affected by what happens at work so that when you come home, you die. That's why the statute is there. And so there's no question that this was legitimate, but the court wanted to read the statute very stingily. And we saw it again recently in the question of whether the Environmental Protection Agency had the capacity to regulate power plants producing greenhouse gases, and the majority barely read the statute at all. If you want to know what the statute says and the details of the statutory scheme, you have to read Elena Kagan's dissent which actually reads the statute. The majority essentially says this is a really big deal that Congress wasn't thinking about at the time they passed the statute. And so no matter what the language of the statute says, Congress can't reach it. There's a powerful presumption here that crippling the capacities of the state is going to make people freer. And all that I can say about this is that if you read the statute, that was not the judgment of the elected representatives of people when they passed the statute. The elected representatives of people wanted government to do something about dirty air and wanted uh, the government to do something about workplace hazards that are going to kill you. The other thing that I'll say about the Supreme Court is that this libertarian streak is one that has not been successful in Congress. And it's a powerful tendency within the Republican Party, but it's hard to get people to vote for it. Uh, I guess the real test of that was when the Republicans held both houses of Congress and the presidency, and they tried to repeal Obamacare, and it turned out that you just could not get the votes among Republicans for taking health insurance away from 20 million people. That just turns out not to be what Americans want, even though extreme libertarianism will say that that is what justice requires.
0: That's a great example to illustrate exactly how unappealing libertarianism is in the way that it is commonly understood today. So you do, however, emphasize in the book that libertarians and liberals are branches of the same tree. So where do you see the principles of libertarianism showing up on the left today?
1: The core idea of liberalism is that people ought to be able to live as they like. That people ought to be free to construct their lives in the way that they choose, which is a radical new idea in human history. Most of the time, the state was devoted to the idea that the purpose of the state is the greater glory of King Sargon and his triumph over his enemies or the triumph of the master race, or the triumph of the true religion. And the idea that we're trying to promote individual freedom is a new idea. I think the big selling point of libertarianism is the claim that the way to guarantee individual freedom is by having a very small government that throws out all of the apparatus that we've had for more than half a century. And that idea, I think, is false. But the appeal of libertarianism is a liberal idea. Nobody says, well, we want a minimal state because that will produce the greater glory of King Sargon. People don't make that argument.
0: (laughs) Right, right. Well, we started this interview talking about the history of libertarianism, kind of the origin story and the reaction to centrally planned economies. So... Now that those demons are mostly gone or at least sleeping, what is the utility of this school of thought? And perhaps are there new demons that libertarianism could slay?
1: Well, one thing I I look at contemporary libertarians, I look at, for example, the folks who write for Reason magazine or the Bullock conspiracy blog, and they are constantly on the alert for stories about stupid state bureaucrats who are screwing something up somewhere. And an awful lot of the time, they're right. That yeah, uh, you know, I've talked about market failure, but there is also state failure. The claim markets never work and so we should always trust the state is wrong. <laughs> So is the claim that markets never work. And so we need the state to run everything. They're both wrong. The world is just more complicated than that. And the question of whether any particular government program is or is not a failure has to be answered at retail. So I think that, you know, there's quite a lot of really first rate journalism in Reason magazine that exposes things that the state really is screwing up and needs to change.
0: Mm hmm. Yes, I think that's one of the things I really appreciated about your book also is that, you know, libertarianism in this way has been fully embraced by the left, which is to say, like, we need accountability. If it's not working, then we need to stop doing this thing. You know, we can't just keep throwing money at something that we know is not working. So we usually ask guests to share two things for an everyday person to add to their civic action toolkit to be good citizens. But this conversation is, of course, a little more philosophical, and I'm glad for it. But I'm going to change up the question in light of that. How do you think this history, your book, and a better understanding of libertarianism's role in our current politics can help us as civically engaged citizens?
1: I think that this is something that I tell my law students as well. If you are trying to persuade your fellow citizens, one of the ways in which libertarianism has succeeded is by offering a vision of freedom that is emotionally appealing. And one thing that all of us have an obligation to do if we're going to try to persuade our fellow citizens of anything is to become better and more articulate rhetoricians. So I think that the appeal to freedom is an attractive appeal. People want to be free. It is good for people to control their own lives. And so I think that it is helpful if one talks to libertarians, which all of us find ourselves doing from time to time, to realize that there is this common ground, the appeal to liberty has its attractions, and that we really are arguing about means and not ends. And just make the point that most people, if they reflect, are going to agree with you that people aren't freer if they die of COVID. People <laughs> yes. aren't freer if particulate inhalation shortens their lives. One of the things that lots of us want to do with our freedom is live long enough to meet our grandchildren. That, uh The appeal to freedom is great. And I think that you want to show the person you're talking to that you fully appreciate that. You're not against freedom. The question is, how do you deliver it?
0: Right. Yeah, that's a good point. I think so many of us here in this current time have problems communicating with people from all walks of life. And we disagree and then we shut down and we change the subject to something that nobody wants to talk about, like the weather. But anyway, here's my last question. Looking into the future... What makes you hopeful? Oh, quite
1: a lot. It is the case, the state market cooperation that we've seen in the past and are seeing again is producing enormous progress. The last chapter of the book is a pretty gloomy chapter about climate change. And uh, climate change is not a problem the United States can solve all by itself. The main source of climate change in the future is poorer countries that don't want to be poor anymore. The way to keep them from warming up the planet is to hand them green energy technologies on a silver platter, and say, don't burn coal, use these instead. And that has already begun happening. I just saw a survey. There is a growing number of countries in the world that are simultaneously improving their gross national product and diminishing their carbon footprint. And we are seeing more and more of that. And the fact that Biden just invested so much money in green energy, far more than Obama, who made a big investment and it paid off big. Biden's investment is much bigger than Obama's. That makes me very hopeful. This is a matter of serious partisan division. I'm very sorry that the Republicans are uh, They used to understand that there was a problem. They used to be helpful with this. I want my old Republican Party back.
0: Yes. here, here We all do. I think it would make for better governance and better government and more trust in our institutions. Thank you very much for joining us on Future Hindsight. It was really a pleasure to have you on the show. This was
1: great. Thank you so much. This was fun. Good questions.
0: Thank you. Andrew Koppelman is John Paul Stevens Professor of Law at Northwestern University. Next week on Future Hindsight, Cecile Richards is the co-chair of American Bridge, former president of Planned Parenthood, a co-founder of Supermajority, and author of the book Make Trouble. Cecile joins me for a totally horse-race-free debrief of the midterm elections. What happened? Why? And what can those of us who hope to bolster our democracy learn from this year's vote? That's next time on Future Hindsight. Have you checked us out on Instagram yet? We've got a bunch more tips to help you build your Civic Action Toolkit. Follow us on Instagram at futurehindsightpod to get special updates, episode clips, and everything in between. This episode was produced by Zach Travis and Sarah Burningham. Until next time, stay engaged.